0: Hello and welcome to Grand Final History. I'm Kieran McGee and in this episode we go back to 1911, the 15th season of the VFL, where the league has to make some significant decisions to address the problems and scandals of 1910. The issue of open professionalism was finally going to be resolved. It was first raised back in episode 4, when Follower, writing in The Leader, pointed out the benefits of players playing for the love of the game and not chasing payment, as in previous years before the VFL. But he recognised that this was a good coming out of evil, as the crash of the 1890s had been especially hard in Victoria, and with low crowds and low gate takings, there was not the money for players to be paid. Follower predicted that problems would emerge when clubs had more money, and from 1903, or episode 7, the problems of faux amateurism had been a perennial issue with newspaper articles, letters to the editors, and restrictions on player transfers. The scandals of 1910 had proven to many that the issue had to be resolved. Outside of football, the big news in 1911 was the establishment of the Australian Capital Territory and the launch of a worldwide competition to design a capital city for Australia, which would eventually include the Manica Oval where Greater Western Sydney play a number of their home games. Now you know where it all started from. January saw the league finally making serious attempts to address the issue of payer payments. A subcommittee had met and presented a proposal for the clubs to consider. All gate money to be pooled and shared out equally to the clubs, and each club to have 25 players and each player to be entitled to 10 shillings a week in expenses. Which equates to about $60 in 2020 values. On top of this was a scheme of deferred payments based on the number of games a player played, up to £10 per year when a player retires, perhaps an early form of compulsory superannuation. Players, club secretaries, and club residents would all have to sign statutory declarations, legally binding documents, that the expenses scheme was being implemented as per regulations. Given that the league had been formed by eight clubs breaking away from the VFA due in large part to a proposal to centralise all gate takings, this was a significant proposition for the clubs to digest. The VFL claimed that given only expenses were being reimbursed, the status of an amateur game was being maintained. You may not be surprised that this proposal did not get much support from the players, nor the majority of clubs. In what could be seen as the first hint of a players' association, there was a meeting of 70 league players at the Orient Hotel in Bourke Street, which called for the adoption of professional payments administered by the clubs. The weekly 10 shillings expenses simply wasn't going to cut it. The next meeting of the league was always going to be interesting. A delegation of players requested to be heard. After some resistance, for surely this was a matter for the league and the clubs, the players need to speak to their respective club committees. The players have no role here. There was an eventual, possibly reluctant agreement to allow the players to speak to the, de- the delegates' meeting. Speaking on behalf of the players was Mr Elmsley, member of the Victorian Parliament, future Premier, and who you last saw defending South Melbourne's fiery ruckman Albert Franks, who was suspended for assaulting umpire Lady Tullock after a tribunal hearing last season. The chair of the meeting was Mr McCracken, President of the VFL, who told Mr Elmslie that the players should place their ideas to the club committees. The player deputation then withdrew. After much discussion, the vote for pulling the gate receipts was tied 10 for and 10 against, so the motion was lost. The chair, Mr McCracken, then made the technically correct but obviously flawed statement, We will revert to the rule in operation last year and no player is to be paid. This brought immediate objections from some of the delegates. Jack Vale from Richmond said that this rule should be expunged. He said it was a farce, given that more players received money than those who didn't. Ted Kennedy from Carlton supported this, pointing out that there was no doubt clubs played players. Jack Vale called for a special meeting to abolish the rule forbidding player payments, but this did not get the majority. Despite the open admissions of the fact that players were getting payments, Despite the clear request from the vast majority of players, the league was, for the time being, continuing to pretend that it was an amateur game. Old boy in the Argus, writing after the failed proposals, revived the push for an independent body, not club delegates bound by club loyalty, to manage the game in Victoria. John McInerney, the reformed president of Carlton, had taken time off for his health and travelled to Europe In England, he spent time studying the football association that ran soccer. Open professionalism was embraced with supervision and discipline strict by both clubs and the association, leading to an absence of rough play and coarse language, and an appreciation that the game was being played honestly. Professional players were excluded from administration. An amateur league existed for those who wanted to play as amateurs, but it was a professional game attracting the big crowds who wanted to see the best players. McInerney was scornful of the league's proposal to centralise gate takings and pay an allowance for expenses. The clubs should control their own affairs and the players should be paid what they are worth according to the club. Finally he also called for an amalgamation with the BFA with two divisions allowing for promotion and relegation. On top of this was a call for an independent governing council of five gentlemen who would not be subject to the influence of a particular club. It would be many decades before a league commission was formed. In the 1980s, the VFL engaged McKinsey's to write a report that led to the formation of the league commission. Perhaps they could have saved a lot of money simply by reading newspaper reports written 70 years earlier. Numerous articles described a growing momentum for a new league with clubs from the VFA and the VFL who supported professionalism. There were meetings at the North Melbourne and Richmond football clubs discussing the same issue. Yet the league persisted with the folly of holding on to Rule 29, prohibiting player payments. At a special meeting at the end of February, St Kilda's delegate, Mr Keane, moved a motion to abandon Rule 29, openly admitting that St Kilda and other clubs had to bid for players. Support came from Carlton, Richmond, Geelong and Collingwood. However, the father of the game, Mr Henry Harrison, attending as Melbourne's delegate, thought professionalism would turn young men into loafers and drunkards. Mr Williams from the University Club also had a different view, perhaps a somewhat idealistic view. He reminded the delegates that football was a game, not a business, a game to develop boyhood And young manhood. The game should not be supported by the public and a man with a wife and a family also had no right to play the game. He should stop at home and do some gardening. Ted Kennedy did ask whether that man should be allowed to watch the game. Mr Williams actually responded to this point saying two-thirds of the crowd of football games would be better away. There was a considerable amount of betting going on amongst the young men. Those university professors had a very different view of the game than their neighbours at Carlton. The motion was put to the vote needing a three-quarter majority to pass. The result was 13-4 and 6 against. Given the vote for pooling of payments had been 10-4 and 10 against, there was clearly some momentum for professionalism, but they were not there yet. A few days later, at a meeting of the Carlton Football Club, The refusal of the league to admit to professionalism was condemned and a vote of no confidence in the league was passed unanimously. There was also support for a new body to control football in Victoria, combining with like-minded clubs from the VFA. Similar resolutions were being passed at other club meetings. Carlton added to the pressure at their AGM by openly admitting that their previous balance sheets had been false and they had paid players £984 last year. It would not be the last time that Carlton cooked the books to hide player payments, but that's a story for another time. At a league meeting in late April, a week before the season started, the proposition to remove Rule 29 was put again, and the vote was again 12 for and 7 against, hence lost. The opposition consisted of Fitzroy, University, St Kilda and Melbourne, Fitzroy and St Kilda wanted a scheme where payments were capped. Just abolishing the rule could lead to an open-slaver system, pushing the weaker clubs out of existence. The clubs in favour were convinced that it should be up to the clubs to manage their own affairs. Wally Crichton from Essendon then stirred the pot a bit more by proposing that the league take action against the clubs that had paid players, that the league should actually enforce its own rules starting with last season. Not surprisingly, there were no seconders for that motion. In May, the motion to rescind Rule 29 was put again, the season already underway for two weeks. Again, there was discussion on whether payments would be capped. It was noted that if the rule did not exist, then clubs could share their balance sheets openly, knowing that they were looking at an honest set of accounts, and proposals for managing payment schemes could then be discussed. This seems to have done the trick. The vote was taken, 16 supporters against the four delegates of Melbourne and University. At last, the decision was made. No more cooking the books, no more under the table payments, and no more accusations of hypocrisy for not enforcing an unworkable rule. Now the next question to be resolved was a unified body to control football in Victoria. Some type of amalgamation between the VFA and the VFL perhaps the formation of a Victorian football union, or some other measure. The VFA was happy to meet with the league to discuss amalgamation, but there was dissent about clubs such as North Melbourne, who were alleged to be in communication about the formation of a new body, the Victorian football union perhaps, separate from the league and an association. It was getting tense in the world of club, association and league administration. The league and the VFA had been meeting regularly for some time without disclosing the results of their discussions. In June, this group, effectively a subcommittee of the VFL and a subcommittee of the VFA came up with a proposal to take to both bodies a framework towards a unified control of football in Victoria. A big effort given the acrimony between both parties since the original eight clubs broke away from the VFA in 1897. It was not an immediate step to amalgamation, but rather creating a process of coordination, cooperation which might grow in time. There would be one controlling body made up of representatives from the League and the Association, but the League and the Association would still exist as independent competitions. Any changes to be submitted to both bodies? The VFA agreed, but the League was not so enthusiastic, even though its own subcommittee had developed a proposal. It felt that this would be a hindrance on the league. In terms of coordination with the VFA, well, the subcommittee could keep on meeting as required, but nothing more was required. The league knew what was best for football, and it did not need to be bound up with a third body. And that was the end of the potential path to unification of the VFA and the VFL in 1911. Some considered the VFL to be arrogant and risking the development of football. Others, including the league, thought they were the best body to lead senior football in the state, and they were going to continue to do it their own way. It's probably time to look at what's been happening on the field and related activity. The big football news at the start of the season was Essendon picking up Jack Worrell as their coach. The same olds had made the finals in the last two years, but failed to make an impression. Getting the original super coach with his discipline and football mouse which surely help get results from what up till now had just been potential at Essendon. The VFL umpires were going to be left on their own after just one season with Jack Worrell as their coach. The reigning premiers, Collingwood, won their first game away at Fitzroy and, in somewhat of a surprise, the St Kilda boys kicked accurately to win at home against a wasteful Geelong team. 10 goals, 6, to Geelong's 7 goals, 15. But, wins were going to prove elusive for St Kilda again this season. Essendon started with an exciting match under their new coach against his old team, Carlton. After four hard-fought quarters with several players injured, the result was a draw. Essendon on 5 goals 15-45 to Carlton 6 goals 9-45. University were making the big move from the East Melbourne Cricket Ground to become the first co-tenants at the MCG, sharing the home of football with Melbourne. This was about 60 years before Richmond moved from Punt Road to share the G. Sadly for the students, the move did not turn out so well. The shift to open professionalism and the move to the MCG saw university enter one of the most unsuccessful periods of any football club. After three promising seasons, things were going to get tough for the university boys. Although, they had a victory in their first home game on the MCG in Round 2 against St Kilda. It was to be their only win for the season. There was another draw in Round 2 where Geelong and Melbourne finished the game on 7 goals 12 each. In the last quarter, Melbourne could not score and Geelong 2 goals 7, ensuring supporters of both teams had plenty to be frustrated about. Melbourne were so upset, they entered a protest. Geelong had had a kick after the bell had gone and a point was awarded. The Melbourne players said they had touched the ball and therefore the game was over. The ball should have been declared dead. But the goal umpire's decision was final, the protest was dismissed and the draw stayed on the books. Draws were proving popular this season and Carlton had their second draw in Round 2 when they finished on the same total as South Melbourne. It was an odd start to the season for the Blue Boys. Essendon were showing their strength early in the season and in Round 4 they travelled to Victoria Park to take on the reigning Premier's Collingwood. The same olds took possession of the game by kicking 12 goals in a row across the 3rd and 4th quarters. They were setting themselves up as early premiership favourites. On-field violence had been a problem that the VFL had started to address with some severe penalties in the previous season, but there were still many clashes in 1911. There were two contributing issues to violence on the ground. One was the way that the umpires were selected for games, and then what happened if a player was reported. Firstly, the selection of an umpire for each game was something agreed between each competing club. Club officials reviewed the list of potential umpires and chose one that was acceptable to both teams. It created a none-too-subtle pressure that umpires would not want to upset a club by reporting their players, otherwise they would risk missing out on future games and the pay for umpiring a match. If a player was reported, rather than an independent tribunal, The player went before the Investigations Committee, made up of club delegates. Now I'm sure that all club delegates would say they took their role on the Investigations Committee very seriously, but there would always be the apprehension of bias. You might be less likely to convict players on your own team. Perhaps there might have been suspicions that some clubs would go softly on a player, expecting the favour to be returned at some future time. Umpires might be discouraged from reporting the player they felt their efforts were not going to be backed up by the Investigations Committee. There had been calls for umpires to be allocated at random, or at least independently of the clubs, and also for independent tribunals to hear reports, but so far, no action on either front. The next crisis on player violence reared its ugly head during Round 4. Just while Essendon were going on a goal-kicking spree at Victoria Park, University were hosting Carlton at the MCG. The headline after the game was, quote, BRUTAL FOOTBALL! PLAYER EXCLUSION SORT! During the last quarter, University's Victorude was struck in a cowardly and unprovoked manner and knocked out in front of the MCC reserve. There were fears for his health. Spectators and players were outraged. University wrote to Carlton immediately after the game, declaring they would not play the return game against Carlton unless certain players were left out of the Blues team. University did ask the league to investigate, as well, once it was understood that the umpire had not reported the player. Carlton were most unhappy with the University, who had sent a copy of their letter to the press, and they were flouting the rules and conventions of the league. However, any action by the league would have to wait until the judicial system had played its part, because Carlton's Martin Gotts had been charged by the police, and was found guilty of assault and fined £10. However, the conviction was appealed and eventually dismissed. Multiple witnesses were called at the appeal hearing, and it was not clear who had hit poor old Victrude. So Gots got to play on. Round eight saw more violence on the field, leading to a long suspension and the player having to front the courts. Essendon's forward, Jim Martin, had been reported for striking Fitzroy's George Holden. Despite rumours that the police were about to lay charges, The VFL's investigative committee proceeded with their deliberations. There was conflicting evidence from the field and boundary umpires. The field umpire said Martin put his arm out and hit Holden. The boundary umpire thought it had been a fair bump that had knocked Holden out. Other witnesses included players, a spectator and a police constable. Without any video, the league needed as many witnesses as they could get. The result saw Jim Martin suspended to the end of the season, a 12-week ban. A few weeks later, in the District Court, Jim Martin was charged with having assaulted Holden and in a case that lasted nearly all day in front of a packed courthouse, again with conflicting evidence from a number of witnesses, the bench decided that the charge was proved and imposed a fine of five pounds and one shilling or one month's prison. An appeal was immediately launched. St Kilda had not been a successful club for the majority of the time in the BFL. But things got worse in 1911. The players and committee were in disagreement. Something that started with the allocation of dressing room tickets blew up into a player strike by Round 15 at the end of July. Carlton got the benefit of match practice and a percentage boost when a team of youngsters was selected for St Kilda. The Blues winning 18 goals 21 to 2 goals 3. An astonishing score for this low scoring era. It got worse the following week when Essendon showed no mercy, kicking 24 goals, 19, to the Saints, 5 goals, 8. The strike meant an influx of new players for the Saints, with 62 players used across the season, a record for any VFL AFL season that will stand forever, given that club lists are now limited to 44 players. The strike was resolved in the second last round, but the Saints lost the last two games, with both Richmond and Geelong enjoying a day out and kicking many more goals than usually seen. The final four was a familiar collection of clubs, with the same four teams finishing at the top of the ladder for the third season in a row. Only the order had changed over the years. Essendon were now well clear on top, having only lost two games, and earning the right of challenge. Followed by South Melbourne, second with 13 wins, one ahead of Carlton, and Collingwood making up the four, two games clear of Fitzroy. Collingwood's efforts over the first 15 years of the VFL are worth noting. They had won three premierships, but perhaps more convincing is the fact that they had finished every season in the top four. An impressive effort when you consider the rise and fall of other clubs around them. South would take on Collingwood in the first semi-final, followed by Essendon taking on John Morrill's old team Carlton in the second semi. The first semi-final was held on Saturday 9th of September between Collingwood and South Melbourne. In the two engagements earlier in the season, Collingwood had won the first by one goal, and the return match was even closer, with South winning by a solitary point. So it seemed to be two evenly matched teams. South were putting on a strong team on the field, but Collingwood were hampered by the loss of their captain, George Ancus, with an ankle injury. Over 43,000 people were at the MCG. Before the game, Charles Brownlow, the former Geelong star and long-time delegate to the league, spoke to both teams, urging them to play football and nothing else. On this occasion, the game was not marred by any overt violence, so perhaps the players took heed of Mr Brownlow's thoughtful suggestion. Spectators even gave umpire Jack Elder a round of applause at half-time for a job well done. A rare but welcome compliment. The ground was in good condition and the game was close at least until half-time when South trailed by one goal, 2-7 to Collingwood on 3-7. But Collingwood dominated the third quarter kicking five goals while South could only add one. The third quarter bells saw South at three goals ten, well down against Collingwood's eight goals ten. A five goal break was always going to be difficult to overcome and so it proved. South held Collingwood in the last quarter where both teams added three goals and one behind, but that one bad third quarter meant that South Melbourne's season was all over. The loss also impacted the players wardrobe. They had been promised a brand new suit If they won. Not sure if the fine linen was included in their salary package, but Collingwood won 11 goals 11 to South Melbourne 6 goals 11. The Magpies hope for back-to-back premierships was still alive. However, their champion forward and captain Dick Lee had ended the match injured, so lame as to be quite useless Would he be able to recover in the two weeks before their next assignment, taking on the winner of the second semi-final? In the Herald, it was reported that Dick Lee played with an aluminium shield over his right chin. The shield cushioned with felt and cotton wool. It bore the dents of boots that had been driven into it during the season. The second semi-final was on the following Saturday, between Carlton and Essendon. In the week before, the league had a special meeting to address the results of some court cases resulting from on-field violence earlier in the season you recall that Jim Martin, Essendon's forward, had been suspended for 12 weeks by the League for Striking Fitzroy's George Holden. He'd been found guilty in the District Court of assault, but lodged an appeal and the conviction was overturned, the legal system finding him not guilty. In a similar situation was Carlton's Martin Gotts, charged by the police for assaulting University's Victrue, and also found guilty in the District Court, but then cleared on appeal. However, Gotts was never reported by the umpire and the league had held off any further action pending the outcome of the legal proceedings. Given the success of his appeal, the VFL Investigations Committee decided they could take no action against Gotts, much to University's disdain. However, in a curiously illogical decision, they also decided not to reopen Jim Martin's case despite his successful appeal, and his 12-week suspension remained in place, costing him. Any chance of playing in the finals. There was an innovation that would be picked up the following season. The second semi-final saw players wearing numbers on their backs. White numbers for Collingwood and red numbers for Essendon. Players' names and their numbers were listed on the scoreboard and on cards issued at a penny each. Another revenue raiser for the VFL or an improvement for the spectators or possibly both. As in the previous week Charles Brownlow would address the players before the game on the need for good sportsmanship and the umpire was again the respected Jack Elder. Carlton were concerned about their veteran big man Jim Marchbank. He owned a wood mill on the Black Spur near Healesville and on the Wednesday before the game he was riding his horse home from work when his horse fell. Treatment from doctors followed. No broken bones were found and this was followed up by hot air and massage treatment. State of the art medical science in 1911 and he was declared fit for the game. In the two earlier games, Essendon and Carlton had played out a draw in the first round and in the follow-up game at Princess Park, the Blues had kicked four goals to none in the final quarter to give Essendon one of their two defeats for the season. This final was sure to have an edge, given that Jack Worrell was coaching Essendon against his old team Carlton. Despite the Blues' earlier win, Essendon's strong season had them as favourites. They were confident they would not need the right of challenge. Over 40,000 people filled the MCG. The gates having been opened earlier to reduce crushes at the entrance. The early arrivals saw a curtain raiser with the grand final of the Metropolitan League between Collegians and Leopold. That game seemed all over at half time with Collegians up by 7 goals 11 to Leopold on 1 goal 1. Some Collegian barrackers might have even opened the champagne, but they were to be sadly disappointed. Leopold, against the win in the third quarter, kicked 4 goals 2 to Collegians 2 behinds. And in the fourth quarter, they romped home kicking 6 goals 3 to a sad 2 behinds for the defeated collegians. A 10 goal turnaround after half time. Not a bad way to take out the competition's premiership, and sure to have given the people arriving at the MCG something to watch as they waited for the big game. The game between Essendon and Carlton was not as skillful as the first semi-final a week earlier, and many said not as skillful as the curtain raiser but it was a tighter competition for most of the game. Carlton were 5 points up at quarter time and led by 9 points at half time. Although many of the spectators were asking each other what was wrong with both Essendon and Carlton, so Paul was a football on show. After a close third quarter, the Blues' advantage was still 7 points. Carlton on 5 goals 11 to Essendon on 4 goals 9. Carlton might have started to plan for a preliminary final against Collingwood. However, Jack Worrell had made this Essendon team into a stronger and fitter combination than previous seasons. They had spent the first three quarters playing poor football with terrible kicking, but the last quarter saw a turnaround where they showed the large crowd why they had finished the season on top of the ladder. The same olds opened up their play, improved their kicking, got some rhythm into their game and monopolised the play. Carlton did score one behind at the start of the last quarter and a goal near the end, but it was Essendon's five goals four that everyone remembered. The final was between last year's premiers, Collingwood, and the dominant team of the season, the newly improved Essendon, showing the benefits of their new coach. If Collingwood were to win, they would have to beat the top of the ladder Essendon twice. The final training runs were held in damp weather, with Essendon players practising goal kicking and passing drills with a greasy ball. They had a special dinner after training to sketch out a plan for the big final. Over at Victoria Park, the Magpies were also training in the dismal conditions, but this did not stop about 500 supporters watching the last training session of the season. The players were split into two teams, to rehearse passing drills, keeping possession of the ball as it was moved up and down the ground, under the watchful eye of Captain George Ankus, who, with an injured ankle from the second last game of the home and away round, was acting as a non-playing coach for the finals. Acting Captain Dick Lee had injured his leg in the semi-final against South, but was expected to be right for the game, although he had a lighter training run than the others. As in previous seasons, the curtain raiser for the grand final was a schoolboys game between New South Wales and Melbourne. The game was won by a Melbourne team, with some questions raised as to whether all the local boys were all under the age of 16, as per the agreed rules. The gates were to be opened at 1245 and the public was cautioned against buying tickets in the surrounding streets and parks, as these would be frauds. While bicycles were permitted into the ground, they would not be allowed into the grandstand. The league had met the evening before, and decided to have special police protection for the players. After the previous Saturday, two of the Essendon players had been assaulted on leaving the ground to go to the dressing room. One player was kicked by a woman! Bill Strickland, Collingwood's Delegate, made the point that the league had requested permanent protective barriers so players could leave the playing arena safely. Perhaps next season's games would only be played on grounds, that provided safe conditions for players. It was also decided that spectators should not be allowed to sit inside the boundary fence, as had happened at a number of previous Grand Finals when the fence gave way, and to insist that the teams obey the rules the clubs only take a 15-minute break at half-time. A quarter of an hour was surely long enough for the players to rest and get any further instructions from their coach. The crowd at the MCG was 44,000. On this same afternoon, the VFA had approximately 30,000 people attending their grand final between Essendon City and Brunswick. Over 70,000 people attending two football games when the population of Melbourne was around 600,000. More than 11% of the city's population To help provide some sort of scale, that would be the equivalent of nearly 600,000 people attending two events at the same time in Melbourne today. Football was very popular in Melbourne, and with two clubs representing Essendon in the finals of both the league and the association, it could either be a very happy or a very sad Saturday night in Essendon town, depending on the results of the game. Essendon had been the dominant team in the 1890s before the VFL was formed. They were Premiers in 1891, 92, 93, 94, and in the first year of the VFL in 1897, hence the nickname The Same Olds. Who will be Premiers this year? Same old team as always. But they had dropped off the pace, only winning the Premiership in 1901, and performing poorly in finals in recent years. Would John Worrell be able to turn that around in his first year as coach? Essendon's captain was Dave Smith. Son of George Smith, a Carlton champion of the 1880s, Dave was an all-round sportsman. As a cricketer, he played for Australia in a tour of New Zealand in 1909-10 and toured England in a Asher series, playing two tests. However, his cricketing career came to an end when he failed to appear at a disciplinary hearing conducted after the 1912 tour to address allegations of indiscipline, drunkenness and rudeness to the English public. Perhaps he was a cricketer ahead of his time. He had debuted with Essendon in 1903, playing as a ruckman, then moving to centre-half forward, who became the captain in 1911 and spent the season at full forward. He had grown up in Richmond, but ended up at Essendon as they were in the VFL and playing at the East Melbourne Cricket Ground, close to Richmond. He would eventually play one game for Richmond in 1914, after his cricket duties were over. Collingwood would be led by Dick Lee in place of the injured George Ankers. Dick Lee had been playing since 1906 and already established himself as a champion of the game. He led the goal kicking tally for the VFL across multiple years. He represented Victoria 17 times across a career lasting from 1906 to 1922 with 230 games and 707 goals to his name. All of that with a dicky knee, it is possible that the phrase originated with him, and a shin that had been badly injured in 1908 and the wound would often open up after each game. And, as the move to number players gained momentum, he joked that he would probably get number 13. And he did! He was coming into this game under a cloud, having been injured in the semi-final. Would it be a gamble that paid off? The umpire would be Jack Elder, meaning that he'd done both the semi-finals and this final game. Just as the game was ready to start, the rain came tumbling down. Those in the outer looked longingly at the grandstand, but there was no more room there and those without umbrellas protested at those who were using them. It did not help in the quality of play, as the ball skated off at odd angles. As noted by Observer in the Argus, the wrong man in the wrong place was getting the ball at the wrong time. Essendon were more prepared than Collingwood, having come out in long-sleeved jumpers, while Collingwood were left wet and cold in their sleeveless tops. Essendon were handling the wet, and it was their ruckman George MacLeod who got the first goal. They had dominated the play in the first part of the quarter, but they were not putting the score on the board. Then Dick Lee got into the play, but it did not go well for the Collingwood captain. He tripped over a full Nessenden player, wrenched his knee and limped away. Collingwood had more bad luck when centre-half forward Dan Minogue injured his shoulder, in what was later reported as a broken collarbone. The Magpies' two main avenues to goal were both severely injured, and there were no substitutes to replace them. Essendon were able to push back against Collingwood's forward pushes, and Bill Walker in the forward pocket passed to big man Fred Baring whose strong punt kick got Essendon's second goal for the quarter. Then Collingwood got a bit more systematic and put Essendon on the defensive. By getting the ball into their forward line more often the Magpies did have a bit of luck finally when a missed kick landed in Dick Lee's lap five yards from the goals. He converted to get Collingwood's first goal for the game. Quarter time, Essendon led two goals four to Collingwood, one goal one. The rain stopped as the second quarter began, but Collingwood were having trouble with the greasy ball and could not get their famous system of pinpoint passing in place. The ball was in Essendon's forward line when Jack Kirby was pushed in the back, and from the free kick, the forward pocket put Essendon another goal in front. It was a scrambling quarter of football with a wet surface and a wet ball, putting an emphasis on possession rather than skill. Neither team could convert with accuracy, but it must be remembered that with Minogue and Lee both injured, it was Collingwood playing at the biggest disadvantage. At half-time, when the league had reminded the clubs that there was only a 15-minute break, Essendon was 16 points in front in a low-scoring game, 3 goals 9 to 1 goal 5. Collingwood came out on time, with long sleeve jumpers on, hoping to handle the ball better, but they had to wait. Umpire Elder blew his whistle to get Essendon out of the dressing rooms, but there was no movement. Supporters and players were still kept waiting. The umpire entered the Essendon rooms to demand action, where he found the players getting their boots restopped. Perfectionist coach Jack Worrell had decided that his players needed longer stops to deal with the slippery conditions. If that meant the Collingwood players were left waiting out in the cold and the rain for almost another 15 minutes, well, that was not his problem, was it? The game was eventually restarted without some of the Essendon players. It took 26 minutes before they had their full team on the ground. At half-time, Dick Lee had moved to full-back, swapping with Ted Rowell, in order to provide more options up front for Collingwood. Essendon had the win this quarter, which had picked up again, but it was the new full-forward Ted Rowell for Collingwood, who took a strong mark and kicked Collingwood's second goal. The wounded magpies were in the game bringing cheers and barracking from their supporters. Then Rowell's good play helped Collingwood half-forward flanker Percy Wilson pass the ball to the injured Dan Minogue. With his left arm hanging from his shoulder, he put the ball through the middle and reduced the gap to four points. In what seemed to be a few moments, the ball was back in the Magpies forward line and Ted Rowell, under pressure from defenders, took a splendid mark. The swapping of Lee for Rowell from full-back was looking an inspired move. But... To the groans of bagpipe supporters, the shot of goal missed and only added another point to the score. Against the wind and against the tide of the game, having been left waiting for nearly half an hour, Collingwood had placed their mark on the game, kicking two goals three to Essendon's two behinds. The three-quarter time score had everyone focused. A three-point game meant that they could all be back here next week if Collingwood could do the same in the last quarter. If Essendon wanted the Premiership in just one game, they would need to improve. Essendon were on 3 goals 11 to Collingwood 3 goals 8. The stage was set for someone to make a name for themselves in the final quarter. Essendon got the ball down into their forward line first but could not convert. A series of passes saw the wall down the other end and Tom Baxter was the recipient of a free kick for being pushed in the back. You might remember Tom Baxter. Some might consider him lucky to be playing this game or any game of the 1911 season. Having been reported in the 1910 Grand Final for striking Carlton's Jack Backey and suspended for 12 months. But his teammate and longtime friend Richard Dakin wrote to the VFL claiming that it was he that struck the blow against Backey, and in a surprising turn of events, the investigation was reopened, Baxter was exonerated, and Richard Dakin was suspended for a year. But Dakin had already planned to leave the state, finishing his football career and going off to work in Western Australia. I wonder how the disciplinary committee members felt when they saw what unfolded as they watched Tom Baxter playing another grand final and with the chance to put Collingwood in front. But his shot missed, scoring a point only. The ball was returned to play, but it was stuck in Collingwood's forward line. Again, it was Tom Baxter who picked the ball up and had a quick snapshot and scored another behind. Still the Magpies were pushing forward and Tom Baxter had become a ball magnet. He got another free kick and had another shot at goal, but this time? he kicked into the man on the mark. What was happening to Collingwood? Two key forwards crippled in the first quarter, their full back sparking a return around in the third quarter, and now the notorious Tom Baxter, who many thought should not even be on the field, had the ball on a string, but could not score that much needed goal that would put Collingwood in front. The ball was on the southern wing of the MCG when it was kicked forward for Essendon, and their forward pocket Bill Walker took a strong pack mark. He kicked Essendon's first goal since the second quarter, and put a bit more distance between them and the Magpies. Now it was time for Essendon to dominate play. Cinnamon Bill Stewart had a shot at goal from a free kick, but the ball went out of bounds. But the same olds took advantage of having the ball in their territory, and Lou Armstrong passed the ball forward to half-wart flanker Shay, Shea, who kicked their fifth goal, putting Essendon 13 points clear. Would it be enough? Supporters of both teams were willing their players on. The scrappy play of the first half was forgotten. The pressure cooker final quarter was the focus now. From the bounce, it was Collingwood who got the ball into their forward line. And again, it was Tom Baxter picking the ball up, and this time he snapped truly. A goal, and Collingwood were only seven points down with five minutes to go. Dave Ryan got the ball forward again for Collingwood to the injured Dan Minogue. But he could only score another behind. It was a goal the difference. Essendon could not clear the ball out of Collingwood's forward line. Ted Rowell, hero of the third quarter, had another shot, but could not score. Then Jack Elder blew his whistle to a water-free kick. Collingwood supporters cheered. The decision was for Tom Baxter. He was on a bit of an angle, but within kicking distance. He'd got a goal with his last shot after a couple of misses. Maybe this time. Could he tie the game? He placed the ball on the ground for a punt kick. Any money, you'll get it, yelled one of the excited fans. But sometimes grand finals create villains rather than heroes. Baxter's shot went straight into the chest of the man on the mark. The game was all a scramble again, as Essendon fought to clear the ball and Collingwood pushed for the goal that would keep their chance of another Premiership alive, even if a tie meant two more games. Essendon had spent much of the last quarter with all 18 men clogging up Collingwood's forward line. Plugging the defences is an old tactic, so it was forward pocket Ernie Cameron who produced one of the memorable moments of his career a long way from the forward line, when he ran the ball from the back line to the wing, relieving pressure and buying more time, so Collingwood had no opportunity to go forward again before the bell rang to end the game and the season. Collingwood had won the second half of the game, kicking 3 goals 6 to Essendon's 2 goals 2, but it's the total score of the match that counts, and this meant that Essendon were Premiers, winning by 1 goal, 5 goals 11, to Collingwood, 4 goals 11. Jack Worrell had become the first coach to win Premierships at different clubs, and Essendon were champions of the league. Happily for the suburb, over in North Melbourne, at the VFA final, Essendon City also won the Premiership. It was reported in the Argus that late on Saturday, in the suburb of Essendon, many men were incoherently murmuring, Sherman! One! The leading newspaper suggested that this success would drive a land boom in Essendon. The fact that so few team members are actually Essendon residents doesn't seem to alter the case. The captains were interviewed after the game by the Herald's Kickero. Essendon's Dave Smith said he thought the Premiership would be theirs once they had beaten Carlton. In the final, it was Essendon's ability to handle the wet ball in the first half that gave them the advantage. The third quarter saw them rattle, due in part to the supporters' disapproval of the delay in Essendon getting back out onto the ground. Smith also praised new coach Jack Warrell. He had been a great factor in the success of the team. His advice and rallying speeches had had a fine effect. Smith then said that Carlton were the next best team to them, and that Collingwood had played plucky games with injuries to Lee and Minogue being a big handicap. It was fortunate for us that Baxter was not in form. They clearly didn't have PR specialists training the captains in what to say back in those days. On the other hand, the press of that era seemed to focus on reporting what was said, rather than blowing up any statements into a big issue. Dick Lee thought the game was a certainty for them, and if Tommy Baxter had kicked well, it would have been a cakewalk. But the wet ground was not to their liking. But if Maniog himself had not been injured, I think we would have won easily. See Oli comment about PR spin. Essendon only had to beat 16 men. I think it was the easiest premiership ever. But I do not wish for a moment to take any credit away from Essendon. I congratulate them, for they have played good football all through the season. But I think South Melbourne were the hardest ten to beat. I reckon today's media could spend six months beating up those two interviews. And the focus would also be on Tom Baxter. He had had a wretched last quarter where, despite getting the ball, he was not able to kick the goals that his team required. Given the rumours that began flowing around, he asked the club to set up an investigation. And there was an atmosphere of scandal around Melbourne. In the VFA grand final, a player for Brunswick reported that he had been approached with an offer for £60 to play stiff, along with two other players. He knocked it back and neither he nor the other two players were under suspicion personally but the atmosphere was ripe for rumours. Despite being cleared of any wrongdoing by the Collingwood committee, Baxter left Collingwood and played the following season at St Kilda, his last in the VFL. The success of the Essendon Association team gave them the confidence to challenge their VFL brethren. Despite sharing names, the two clubs were completely separate entities. The VFL team had always played their game at the East Melbourne Cricket Ground and the VFA Essendon played at Windy Hill giving them bragging rights that they were the true Essendon club. But the VFA were not part of the Australian Football Council, and no member of the council was supposed to play teams that were not under its jurisdiction, which is why the VFL were grumpy with the South Australian Football League continuing to arrange interstate games with the VFA. Essendon did travel to Adelaide to take on South Australia Premiers for the Premiership of Australia. The Essendon team was without Captain Dave Smith, Vice-Captain Alan Belcher, who had also missed the grand final with injury, as well as ruckman George McLeod and wingman Fred O'Shea. It had been two weeks since the VFL grand final, and the West Adelaide Club had the same 18 going on to the Adelaide Oval, so possibly the locals had the advantage, although it was reported that West Adelaide had taken several injured men into the game in an entertaining match, described as one of the best ever seen in Adelaide, it was the locals, West Adelaide, that came out on top by three points. As Premiers of Australia, 8 goals 9, 57, to Essendon, 7 goals 12, 54. Some straighter kicking by the same olds might have got them home. Despite the quality of play, only 6,000 people attended. The Premiership of Australia did not grab the public as much as the local grand finals in either state. So that is the end of season 1911. The players were now allowed to be open professionals if they wanted payment, although some were happy to continue as genuine amateurs. The -the under-the-table payment was a thing of the past. A potential closer engagement and potentially an eventual merger with the VFA had been considered and knocked back by the league. Jack Worrell had shown his value by taking Essendon to a premiership in his first year as coach. Perhaps Carlton was regretting its turmoil of the previous two seasons. Join me next time as we explore season 1912. Would Collingwood continue their unbroken run of top four positions? Would the final four have some different teams in it to the last three years? Will Jack Worrell's Essendon continue their newfound success? And could St Kilda continue without another players' strike? Join me next time in Grand Final history. If you have enjoyed Grand Final history, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast from. The more goals we kick, the easier it is for others to find the podcast. And if you have questions or you want to leave feedback, please email me at info at or check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks, and I hope you join me next time.